0: Tonight we come to the latter half of Exodus chapter 2. We'll begin reading from verse 15. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. When Moses heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. and They came and drew water, and they filled the troughs of water to, to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Reuel, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses, and she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel groaned because of bondage, and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Let's pray. Lord, your ways are so high, so far from our own ways. And Lord, perish the thought that we should imagine the way that things should go. Rather, Lord, we come to you to see how things how things are, how things have been in the past and how things shall be. And Lord, we know that these things are perfect. We come to view something that is perfect in itself and also which points us to the larger picture of perfection of your work and ultimately of yourself. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that we would profit from these words that we would consider well this work of preparation for redemption and that you would fill our hearts with that which is good and useful and to be a blessing to ourselves and to those around us in the name of the living God. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, here we pick things up in the second half of... Exodus chapter 2, and it tells us of how Moses left Egypt and how he spent the next 40 years of his life in the land of Midian. Uh, Now, most of you already know that Moses' life is very easily divided up into three sets of 40, his first 40 years in Egypt, the next 40 years in the desert in Midian, and then the next 40 years beginning with the Exodus, but then all the time in the wanderings up until his death at the age of 120 Now, of course, this middle portion, well, we probably have the least information uh, of of all those three years, but it is no uh, throwaway comment here and our looking at it is not about historical curiosity because this is all part of the story of the great work of redemption. You know, God doesn't waste his words. Please never come to the word of God and think, well, this is a waste or that is a waste. Uh, rather, we know that all of this is given to us for our instruction. All of it is of a part, is of a piece of this perfect canon of scripture inspired by God and errant and sufficient for us. And, and so it's not historical curiosity. While this world remains, God is either performing some particular act of redemption or he is preparing for it. Okay? And and that's what this whole book of Exodus is about. That's, in fact, what all of Scripture is about. But these first two chapters are all about the the work of preparation for redemption. And he, as we know, he's going to use a redeemer. He's going to use a type of Christ whose name was Moses. And he needed to prepare him first. He wasn't ready. He couldn't go as the baby, could he? And nor was he ready when he was 40 years old. Reminder of this work of preparation he needed to be prepared and that process had begun beyond his fateful decision to go out from the palace and to go to visit his own people which set in motion then all the rest of the thing he saw up close and personal the way that they were treated he identified with them he sought to save them as his first act of of redemption he was not received by the people eventually he then had to go but in all these things, God was, was going to build up Moses into someone who was ready and able to take on this office of Redeemer. And so beyond what had already happened, first of all, he needed to make him an exile, right? He was going to make him a stranger, a pilgrim in the desert, not someone who is operating from the inside of the halls of, of power, but someone who is coming from the outside. So he's now a, an, a stranger and a pilgrim in the desert, And then he's going to have further practice as a savior, in this case, a savior of a very few of the seven daughters of his father, his future father-in-law, before he would be a savior of many. And to add to that, he'd be a father, a husband and a father. He'd make him to be a family man. This is part of the preparation of making him able to look after God's people, a people of millions. First, he was going to look after his own family. And, of course, also he was going to serve as a shepherd, which in God's providence and God's planning is very often the way he prepares a man to lead his people. Now, all those things, I just mentioned those four things. That's actually an A, B, C, and D rather than a one, two, three thing because it's not just Moses that he's preparing. He's also preparing the people, right? They're not quite ready to be redeemed. You, you see that. We understand last time that even when this incipient work of redemption was, was happening, as the, Moses was just dealing on an individual level, they rejected him. They were not yet ready to receive the redemption of God. They themselves, unfortunately, had to go through a further period of suffering. They weren't, please don't think that they were busy worshiping the living God in its impurity at this point. They had departed from him, unfortunately. They had turned to idols there's a reason for this on, on the other side as well. And, and they needed to be further prepared by further years, unfortunately, of, of suffering and of trials and tribulations until they were willing to call out to the living God. But even that's number two. Number three, the third person, the first one that is, is uh, a, an, uh, an actor in all this is God himself because God himself was in a sense of preparation Right? This is all about the covenant Lord God fulfilling his promises. It's not really about Moses, is it? It's not really about the people. It's really about the living God, the Lord God of Israel, as he is fulfilling his promises. And let me say, if everything were already fulfilled, what promise would be left? You have to understand, we walk by faith. Faith in his promises, what does that, in, what does that imply? That they haven't been fulfilled yet, Right? There's still something, some work of redemption that has not yet happened that we are waiting for. And that means that right now there's always going to be some preparation yet for that work of redemption. And God himself is doing it. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. It's not yet ready for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And God himself is in, as it were, a preparation for this. Over the course of time, he doesn't work in an instant, you know that over rather as it says even in here in the course of time he does his great works his acts of redemption in order that we might see it if it's all done in a flash what would we see what would we know nothing But rather, he does it in the course of time to finite, intelligent beings to angels and to men and women, and we see them. And bit by bit, we can take them in. We receive them, and we glorify God in them. That's his great promise. That's his great purpose. That's his great method of doing these things, that they might be observed by men and that he might be glorified in them. And so as long as there's a promise, there's still a work to be done. And as long as there's a work to be done, there's also preparation to fulfilling it. that's what God is doing. And so all of this is about preparation. The title is Final Preparation for Redemption. And of course, the points are those three actors in this work, Moses, the people, and God. Moses, the people, and God. So first of all, Moses. And by way of preface, again, we know that God could theoretically use someone who is perfectly prepared naturally suited in every sort of way but we don't actually have any examples of that rather he very sometimes he uses the very opposite of someone that we imagine to be perfectly suited just to show that he can but very often he uses a combination of, of a situation. that someone who by their particular uh, birth and by their giftings and upbringing have some things that are useful and, and also he prepares them uh, sometimes by very difficult trials in order to make them more useful and also in addition to those two things, some remaining weakness, some things that he doesn't have because God, of course, has to get the glory. If he always made such a perfect man, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, to do these things, God himself wouldn't get the glory. So even in the case of Moses, we see just how wonderfully well uh, situated he was, even from birth, um, but certainly or soon enough thereafter birth, and also in all of his training, and now we're going to see all of his preparation. But at the end of it, what do we have? A man who in his own eyes says, Lord, I am not the man for this. I'm not a man who's very good at speaking. But God used this particular man, even in his remaining limitations, to glorify himself. Right? So God, with that, with that preface of what we're saying and what we're not saying in the preparation of Moses, we pick it up at verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. All right. So no turning back now. He's really gone from Egypt. He's definitely made a fateful decision, and he's gone. This is completing the process of Moses going out to his own people. He took one step out of his front door of the palace and started walking to the Jewish section of town, whatever that might have been in Ramses or or whatever. And now that tentative step has been utterly complete now he's out with the borders of Egypt. So this is not, this redemption is not going to happen from within. He's now a certified exile. He's not going to come from someone who is working within the system, but from somebody who is utterly without. And again, he's a picture of Christ, all right? One from our own, our own people did not arise from within the system of the world and redeem us. Rather, God sent someone from, from heaven down to earth, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not of us. He came from heaven down to earth in order that he might save us. Moses is now from the outside. And he has now some further practice in being a savior in a very small way. God very often gives his people practice in small things to see if they're faithful in that opportunity before he gives greater things. And and in verse 16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, And they came and drew water, and they filled the trowels to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. Now, some, normally we can have great confidence in in a good translation, English translation of the the Bible, but uh, there's always some little nuance here or there that's not quite captured. And in this case, it's the word helped. Uh, that word is actually the word used almost everywhere else for save, right? Moses saved them. There is a word for merely helping someone, but the Lord in his infinite wisdom did not use that word. He used the word to save someone because he is directing our attention, pointing out what this was about. Because Moses is someone who's going to save his people. Moses, he's the instrument by which he's going to bring salvation, redemption, and and he is using it in a small way, just as he did to save the the, uh, the fellow Hebrew in Egypt. So now he is saving the seven daughters of the priest of Midian, rather than merely helping them. Now in verse eighteen, when they came to Ruel their father, he said, "How is it that you've come so far today, so soon today?" And they said, "An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds." Does that sound familiar? There's the, in fact, the words that are echoed in the, the shorter catechism when he speaks of our Redeemer who came to deliver us, right? To deliver us out of our sin, out of destruction, out of our a terrible situation and to bring us into salvation through a Redeemer. Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he might eat bread. Well, let me just reference how Matthew, Henry, I'm saying that God is preparing Moses through giving him another opportunity to work a small act of salvation for a small group of people. This is what Henry says about it, about Moses. He loved to be doing justice and appearing in the defense of such as he saw to be injured, which every man ought to do as far as in his power of his hand to do. He loved to be doing good. Wherever the providence of God casts us, we should desire and endeavor to be useful. And when we cannot do the good that we would, we must be ready to do the good we can. And he that is faithful in a little shall be entrusted with more. Now, you can imagine the situation of Moses. He, in, as it were, has been rebuffed by his own people. He's come with big plans. He's the prince. And he's going to come help his people. And instead, they reject him. And he could have been in a huff when he was there in the, the well. And he's had it with trying to help people. But having lost, having not been rejected or having not had the opportunity to do as much good as he really wanted to do for his own people in Egypt, now there he's at a well and there's these seven girls he doesn't know and there are these uh, alien shepherds who are driving them away. Well, if you're Moses, and I hope if you're one of God's people, you say, well, I didn't get to do the good that I wanted to. But here's the good that is now in my hands to do, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to stand up and help in the opportunity, in the time that God has given to me. Now, there is a great principle to be learned in all of this. Even in the Marine Corps, there was something told to us. You probably know that we're, we're not all infantry, uh, we're not all combat arms. In fact, there are many jobs to do in the Marine Corps. And for those of us who, who were not infantry, There is a word spoken to us, bloom where you're planted. So even if you have a particular job that isn't quite as glamorous, isn't quite as central to the work of the organization as you might think or desire, the idea is to bloom where you're planted, to do the good that is in your hands to do. And it may well be that God may give you opportunity to do greater. Well, he was being prepared uh, by being in exile, by also being a savior in these small ways and see as a husband and father. In verse 21, then Moses was content to live with the man and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. She bore him a son and called his name Gershon, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. You may recognize some part of that, that word. It's a word for Uh, stranger for the word alien um, Gershom and that's what he was and that's what he named his son but more importantly we see now that God has enabled Moses to be a husband and a father it's interesting to me that all the information all the things that could play a part in the decision to call a man into church office and we're speaking of elders and and ministers and also deacons you, it's so interesting to me what great weight is placed upon his family situation. You know, in a, in a job, uh, you, here's your CV, and it's about education, and it's about the jobs and positions that you've held, and it's about your uh, accomplishments and all the rest of these things. And maybe right at the bottom there's a tiny line, that the fact that you, you happen to be married and have a child or something like that with God and with regard to church office that is utterly upended and reversed yes God cares that we're faithful in our vocations but the thing that is most important for those who would be officers in the church is actually their own family how they have how they have done with their own family the reason is given in first Timothy chapter 3 one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, of course, there are many things that could be learned there. I just say, on the by, fathers, believe me, you must understand that if if he is saying that men are not eligible for church office if they do not rule their own house well, You do not need to be embarrassed that you have been given the office to rule your household, okay? Not only should you do it, but you should do it well to the glory of God. Uh, We we have to understand that in our society, uh, the culture of egalitarianism and everyone just being interchangeable, random parts is so rampant that we are embarrassed about any kind of differentiation whatsoever. But you have to understand that this is the office given, to husbands and fathers, and God will hold you accountable for doing it. Well, anyways, the point is, he says, the the rationale of all this is, if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? It's as simple as that. Because a a family is, is, as it were, a little church. And how are you shepherding that little church? Well, for good or for ill, and of course I stand in a very glass sort of house, For good or for ill, the way a man rules his own house is pretty much the way he's going to rule God's church. And God was giving Moses an opportunity to develop as a family man, to develop as a husband and as a father, that he might be placed in the years to come to shepherd his great people. Now, as I say, it is ordinarily, not always, of course, there are exceptions, God's way to try and to develop a man with a little church of his own household first, and so it was with Moses, Moses, but also, also in now his vocation, because D, as a shepherd, because in verse, uh, just flipping very uh, slightly over to chapter 3, verse 1, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Right? That's what he was doing in the desert all those years after he was brought into the family of uh, this. By the way, this man is, has, is known both as Ruel and as Jethro. As he's called into his household, the useful thing for him to do there, the only vocation that really available to him was as a shepherd. Now, look, God's people are called Sheep. We believe that God created all things by the word of his power. He did not do so randomly. He knew that he was planning in Holy Scripture to call his people sheep. Do you think he, therefore, had any plans for the way he made sheep? Absolutely. He created an animal that in various ways was going to parallel, typify, illustrate what God's people are like. And then to add to sheep the great thing that a sheep needs, more so than perhaps any other animal, is a shepherd, and so God provides in both ways that God, we as his people, can look at sheep and say, yes, that's us. But also that he prepared men by having them watch the sheep first. You know, that's certainly the case with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You remember the process that God used as he was tending the sheep of his father, law Laban, and how he, he, he changed his heart over those long years of shepherding all those sheep And bit by bit, he chipped away at his pride and his deceit and self-centeredness and made him more fit and more able to be a patriarch of God's own people. And then after him, particularly King David, he was called from the sheepfold in order to be the shepherd of the whole nation as king. And so there is something about tending sheep that is just excellent preparation for leading God's people. I'm sure we could make a long list if we wanted to, because it's hard work for for Moses. There's no more royal luxury and amusements being waited on hand and foot. That's all in the past. It's hard work. It's certainly humbling work. It's not the most glamorous sort of thing. It's patient work. You don't. It's not like you know some sort of high powered executive uh, getting on the phone and making some exciting deal happen. Shepherding isn't like that. It's day after day after day of doing the same thing. And then there's lambing season and you see just a, a few of these little ones, but they're not ready yet. That's only the beginning. And then there's more work and more work and bit by bit by bit, the flock is increased over the, the course of years. And, and that's the kind of preparation that God would have. Yes, and in fact, it's also a, a watchfulness against all the enemies of those sheep. The shepherd's got to learn to be watchful. And he's got to be willing to be courageous to defend them against him he's got to be uh generous and and kind to these sheep and finding pasture, good pasture for them and all the rest of these things that would prepare a man to be a shepherd of god's people well god was preparing moses by making him an alien by making him a savior in small ways by making him a husband and father and also a shepherd but god was also secondly come to our second point God was also preparing the people. As we mentioned, we had a a not fully prepared redeemer when he was 40 years old and not fully prepared people and things didn't work out. Well, God is still working on those people as he's working on the redeemer. In verse 23, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. Because unfortunately they weren't done with the suffering. It seems to me as what has been uh, brought to our attention is the bondage. It seems to me that the actual destruction of of the of the male children probably came to an end. That seems to be what the commentators are saying, but that doesn't mean that the bondage comes to an end. Because over time, the focus shifts on the the pharaohs. The focus shifts from killing them off to just keeping them in permanent slavery, so they can be of great of use and a profit to the people. And that's their situation. They're groaning because of the bondage that has continued. So they're being prepared by the work of suffering. Now, let me just say briefly, briefly, what does that say about our suffering? I think it says that there is a purpose even in our suffering. Let us not imagine that our suffering is utterly uh, purposeless or meaningless. If you are God's people, if you're one of God's people and you're suffering, I want you to be 100% certain that there is a good reason, there is a good purpose for it. It is work one way or another, A preparation for better things ahead. Right? So they suffered. And then, B, they cried out to God. They cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. Now, thankfully, we have some other parts of Scripture that help us to understand this. But, again, as I alluded to before, we have to understand that they were not living in the perfection of a wonderful, reformed religion at that point Unfortunately, they had largely fallen into idolatry. So Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 6 tells us this. On the day I raised my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. Then I told them, each of you, throw away the abominations which are before his eyes and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not at all cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Okay, So it's obviously speaking of a future time, but what does it mean if they said they did not forsake the idols of Egypt? It means that prior to the Exodus, what were they doing? They were worshiping the idols of Egypt. They had fallen in with their culture around them, and they'd fallen in with a false religion, and they'd fallen into idolatry. It helps us to understand then why God in his justice would allow them to suffer so very, very long throughout those years, those 80 years, uh, more or less, of suffering. And the answer is that they were not crying out to him in, in the pureness of their hearts. Probably a lot of them were crying out to their Egyptian idols. But in the course of time, in the course of that suffering, God had chipped away at their stony, rebellious hearts, and now they're ready to cry out to God. We know this because it reaches the ears of God. Their cry came up to God because of the bondage. And how does God respond to it? He does not respond with a stony heart so God heard their groaning. And as soon as we hear of a, car, a cry reaching to God, we, we hear that God in various ways is responding. God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel. And God acknowledged them. So that brings us then to our third and final point, which is that God himself was part of this work of preparation and we have those three things that are mentioned, this, uh, this hearing, this remembering, and God looking upon, right? So God was preparing in for to bring redemption in the fact that he is hearing their groans, all right? That is an act of his own sovereign will to direct his attention. You have to understand that he's omniscient. He knows everything. There's not a, a, a sound that is heard in all the history of the world that God does not presently, currently know entirely. He knows all things. So he certainly is not, it's not a matter of, of hearing it in a sense of just that is audible to him. But rather he is directing his, his attention and focus upon these things. And he hears their groaning and an act of will. God is doing this in this work of preparation to bring about a salvation he has brought his people now to the point at which are finally ready to put down their idols and to call out to the living god and now he is ready to listen he's bringing about this redemption and then b he remembered his covenant with abraham that's that's even more important god can listen to people all day long but if there's no connection between himself and those people nothing is going to happen But God is here remembering his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. If God has indeed given such great promises, he he doesn't need to add to those promises, okay? He doesn't need to say, Moses, when when you get to to chapter 3, Moses. I'm going to do a brand new thing. My promises thus far haven't really covered this eventuality of the people being stuck in Egypt as slaves. And so now I'm going to make you a new promise. I promise you that I'll redeem them out of out of Egypt. He doesn't need to do that because he already has a promise, a covenant promise that covers all of that. And all he needs to do, therefore, is remember the covenant promise that he's already made. And brothers and sisters, this is... Our work of prayer, this is the thing that we come to God on the basis of. We come and we say, Lord, remember the promise that you have made to us. Remember the promise that you have made to our people. And this is exactly what God does. You remember maybe even in in the Gospel of Luke in our morning series, in Luke 172, in the Song of Zechariah, what does he say? To perform the mercy promised to our fathers. What is he talking about? and to remember his holy covenant. That's what he's talking about. The birth of, the, of John the Baptist, and thereafter the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his life, and his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension, and all the things that come from it, it is actually an act of remembrance. He has remembered. He is performing the mercy that was already promised to our fathers, and he has remembered his holy covenant. God is remembering his covenant. And God, see, in verse twenty-five, God looked upon the children of Israel and acknowledged them. In kind of a parallel, sort of a parallel with what has happened with Moses as he goes and acknowledges the people as his own brothers, so God Himself looks on these people. Now He could have, as they departed from Him, they could He could have looked upon them as illegitimate, but no, God looked on these people and said, "These." Are my children, and beloved? That's, that's, all that we need to know. If the living, all-powerful, holy God can look on His people and can look on you and say, "You, this is my children, my children," what do you think is going to happen? I think what is going to happen is exactly what He says by the hand of Moses through the mouth of Aaron when He says, "Thus saith the Lord: Let." My people go. See? He has acknowledged them, not in the third person, this group of people here, this group that happens to be living in the the land of Goshen. I have some use for them, these people. He says, no, these are my children. And Pharaoh, I command you that you let my children go. And God did. He, He brought them out with a strong hand. You know that he would. You know that he would protect, just as you would protect your own child, just as you would rescue your own child no matter what the cost. So God rescued his own children from the land of Israel, you see. And in all these things, this work of redemption, actually, now that we know everything that's in chapter 2, everything else is a footnote. By the end of of chapter 2, or at least by the beginning of of verse 1, everything is, is ready to go that Moses himself is ready finally to be a redeemer in this humbling work, and this ordinary work of being a husband and a father, of being a a shepherd. He is ready. He's an alien. He's not an insider. All these things, he is ready to go. And God's people, they're finally ready to lay down their idols. And they're finally ready to cry out to the living God, their own covenant God. And God himself has directed his attention to them. He's hearing their cry. He's remembering his covenant with them. And he owns them as his children. And we know what's about to happen. Well, still a few points of application very briefly. Firstly, God is making preparations for redemption. And I'm talking about the whole church. I'm talking about the whole work, the scope of the history of work of redemption. He is doing it. Because if God is not actually redeeming us at the moment... We know that in some sense he is, as he's carrying on the work of gathering in his church and perfecting his church. But let's just say in whatever sense that he's not doing that at the moment, we can be certain that he is making preparations for that. Okay. If you look out in the world and you see that God is not, and you say to yourself, God is not acting to bring about the salvation of his people and the completion of all things, I want you to understand he is certainly right now actively making preparations for it. And one day when we're in heaven together, when we have that long weekend away that doesn't ever come to an end, we can have a a topic of conversation how it was that even now in our time, we can have a, a wonderful sermon of how this was a time of preparation for the great act the final act of God's redemption yet to come if he is not actually at the moment working in visible ways we can be certain he is working to prepare secondly I want us to understand that he really does make use of our trials okay because here Moses as he's cast out of Egypt as a fugitive that would seem to be the end of Moses usefulness here he is 40 years old in the middle of nowhere in a, in a place no one's heard of, uh, working for the priests of, of Midian, tending his sheep. That would seem pretty much to be the end of his usefulness. But no, no. And and you know, I would say not only there, but what about 10 years after that? He's 50. 10 years after that, he's 60. 10 years after that, he's 70. He's still out there in the desert and this talented man is being wasted as a shepherd and a sheep. But is he? He's not being wasted. No, God is making use of that to prepare Moses for something yet to come. And when he's 80 years old, then he's called to do this great work. So if you look at yourself or even if others look at you and, and say, I, I don't see anything great happening here. Or if you say, I've been stuck in some situation where I'm doing very mundane and ordinary things that the world despises... Are you so sure that God, this sovereign, all-wise God, does not have some plan in the future yet? Are you so positive that he's not preparing you for some work later to come? I can tell you absolutely, absolutely, he's certainly preparing you for heaven. But in many, many cases, he's actually preparing you for work yet to come. He's making use of your trials. And thirdly, let me just say a word to those who aspire to church office, That the wait may seem to be long, and it may seem at times to be a waste, but let me assure you that it is not. It is not. In my own particular case, if I were given the choice, uh, immediately after university I would go straight to seminary, but that was not God's plan. Again and again, there were points at which I thought now is the point at which I can finally go train full time, and it didn't happen. It wasn't God's plan. And the days seem to go further further out. But I do not look back at those days and say, what a waste. I say, praise God. This work of preparation was absolutely necessary. And I want you to understand, if you have any thought, any aspiration to church office, it's not something to, to discourage at all. It says, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. And likewise, the diaconate. If, if you have that understand that God may be long in his preparation and be, pre- be, be patient as God is patient with us. Let us pray. Our most loving Heavenly Father, we are thankful, Lord, that you are patient with us. As you are patient with your people, as you are patient with your, your Redeemer, the, the man Moses, Lord, we are grateful for your patience, but Lord, more so, we are grateful for your covenant keeping. We know, Lord, it would be sooner for the whole world, the whole universe to cease to exist than for any one of your promises to fail. So, Lord, we come on the basis of those covenant promises. We know for certain that you are either actually redeeming us or you are in the process, you are in preparation for these things. And as we look back and we see just how perfectly you prepared everything, uh, Moses, your people, even yourself making these preparations and your approach to your people, Lord, we know that you are doing likewise with us. And so we are thankful that we, alone of the people of the earth, can look at anything that happens and say, this is all part of God's wonderful plan to redeem his people. We we understand, Lord, that sometimes these things are not immediately apparent to us in in real time as they happen. But, Lord, we pray that we'd use this instance in the past as a lens to the future and also to the present, and that we'd learn these lessons. We'd learn of you, and, Lord, that we trust that you are able, well able, to redeem us. And so, Lord, let us be patient and let us be expectant, even in the times and the days of the work of preparation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.